Yes And Cafe, a podcast where we explore, learn, and create with ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Yes And is the powerful, intentional, and creative practice of building with other people. The name comes from improvisational theater. So what is it? One, paying attention. Two, affirming. And three, building on what others give you. That's it. Yes And. I'm Nadja. And I'm Omar. And we're broadcasting from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Yes And Cafe. We're recording here today remotely. We have a wonderful show with Dr. Marianne LaGreco and soon-to-be Dr. Derek Jones, who are going to be joining us for this conversation about food security in our community here in Greensboro, North Carolina, particularly in light of the current pandemic that we're all dealing with. Our thoughts go out to everyone everywhere, our listeners who are experiencing all kinds of different challenges. We're glad to be able to be with you virtually today. I want to introduce our first guest, Dr. Marianne LaGreco. She's Associate Professor of Communication Studies at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Dr. LaGreco has a PhD and an MA from Arizona State University and a BS from Bradley University. She has a really interesting, creative, and community-engaged research project that focuses on promoting food security and improving access to food for members of our community who need it most, particularly timely right now, this research. She's received numerous awards for her work, including the 2018 Rising Star Award from the Greensboro News and Record. Marianne is also a co-host of UNCG's Liquid Philosophy podcast, which is really worth checking out if you haven't already had a chance. So welcome to our show, Marianne. Hi, thanks for having me, Nadja. It's great. I actually had the opportunity of being on Marianne's Liquid Philosophy podcast a little over a year ago, and it was a really great experience and part of what inspired Omar and I to want to do a podcast ourselves. So you are a real trailblazer for us, Marianne. Thank you. I appreciate that. So Marianne, it's been an interesting time to be involved in community-engaged research projects and organizing around food insecurity. What has it been like to be dealing with these issues during the current pandemic? I have been really proud of how Greensboro as a community has responded to the way that we've had to reorganize our lives around COVID-19 and social distancing and the current pandemic. One of the best things that we did right away was Guilford County Schools and the Weaver Foundation started working with each other to figure out how we were going to feed K through 12 kids as soon as the schools closed. And so they were able to get their summer meal network up right away so that schools closed on a Monday and the meal network was up on a Wednesday. And it was just absolutely fantastic to see that. And I think one of the parts of that that's most meaningful for me is that we've been working on organizing around food for over 10 years in Greensboro, even before we got to the top of that Food Research and Action Center list that said we had the highest rates of food hardship in the United States. So we've been doing a lot of work over the last 10 years, and you could really see it start to come to fruition when we really needed it, because we really needed to have this connection with community and this infrastructure to make sure that people had access to food when things started to change. And so I've just been really impressed to see how 
Not only our city and county government offices start to work together, but our nonprofits. I mean, there have been people organizing restaurant groups on Facebook to try to push people to order from local restaurants. And it's just been really impressive to see how people have been organizing. It's also been pretty overwhelming because we've had to figure out things like, how do we move farmers markets to a model where people feel comfortable shopping? And so you've seen some of our farmers markets move to advanced ordering and pickup models or creating online networks where they can direct customers directly to their the vendors from the farmers markets. And so I think we've seen people get really creative in a time when there's a lot of uncertainty. That is really inspiring. It's amazing that it's almost as if you have been preparing for this moment for like a decade of research. I think we had to get ready for it. Like we never knew what was going to happen, but we knew there were going to be moments when food security was going to be a primary issue. Things like food deserts and food access and poverty are issues that we are always dealing with, but they get heightened in times when there is extreme uncertainty or when you're in the middle of a pandemic. I think we realized like I said, about 10 years ago, that we really needed to do some things to get our food system in order. I remember being at a meeting at uh, Elsewhere Artist Collaborative, and there was someone who had just moved here from Charlotte, and she was a big food advocate in that area. And she was surprised at how little food infrastructure we had in Greensboro and Guilford County. And so I think that was one of my personal motivations, I think, at least to get some of these conversations going was that we really didn't have as much food infrastructure as we needed 10 years ago. And now when you look at us today, we've got a network that we were able to get up so quickly. And that's just been really inspiring, I think, on a lot of different fronts. One of the things that's been in the news a lot, as I'm sure you all know, has been in some ways the disparity that has become very apparent because of poverty in terms of African-Americans being disproportionately affected. And I was wondering, what is this looking like right now on the ground and some of the feelings that are out there about how to handle what is in some ways part of American history, the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. And I don't even exactly know if there's a question here, but I'm more just curious to know what your thinking is around this or if it's part of the heightening that you've been experiencing long before the pandemic. I think that's an excellent observation that I'm going to mold into a question for you in terms of how do we make sure that people aren't slipping through the cracks when historically our African-American neighbors are the folks who are most affected by this? I think that's an area where we in Greensboro and Guilford County can do even more work. Because when you look at where food access is most restricted in Greensboro, it's in our neighborhoods that are predominantly African-American. So I do a lot of work with folks in the Warnersville neighborhood of Greensboro. One of my research partners uh, lives in the neighborhood, Naisha Douglas. She's a PhD out of UNC Charlotte. And she and I have been working a lot together to focus on how do we address food access issues in African-American neighborhoods. I think that's one area where we need to be doing more more work in order to make sure that those gaps are filled. So in the Warnersville neighborhood, for example, we have had an urban farm for several years. We first launched it in 2012. And then in 2018, out of the garden project, took over management of it to help us scale it up. And so right now, right in that Warnersville neighborhood at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church, we've got a three acre urban farm that has 50 community supported agriculture shares. So community supported agriculture, 
agriculture or CSA, those are models where folks can pay ahead to the farm so that the farmers can grow the food. And then when harvest time comes, then you just come and pick up your box of food. And so last year in 2019, Out of the Garden Project started a CSA, and this year they've ramped it up to have 50 shares. I recently just became a shareholder in the CSA farm, and one of the things that they are working on doing is trying to make sure that a certain portion of the CSA shares are made directly available to the folks in the neighborhood and figuring out ways that we can help subsidize that as a community. Like, they don't know this yet, but like I'm planning on sponsoring a one of the CSA shares for a member of the Warnersville neighborhood as soon as my stimulus check comes in. I'm pledging half my stimulus check to go toward programs that are specifically reaching out toward folks in our African-American neighborhoods, but also folks who are most impacted by organizing around COVID-19. So if they've lost their job because they work in food service or something like that, then pledging part of my stimulus check toward that. So one of the things that I'm going to do is sponsor one of the CSA shares for someone in the Warnersville neighborhood. So I think that's just one example of how we're trying to continue to organize to reach folks in African-American neighborhoods, because you're absolutely right, Omar. There is a long history going back to Jim Crow laws, going back to slavery, going back to how many white communities relied on black communities to produce their food for them and how we need to address some of that, especially when we're thinking about food access right now. Well, I think that it's really great that you're doing this kind of work. Warnersville is a particularly dear community to me as well. My kids actually went to school in the neighborhood and we worked on a project called Community Play for about five years there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a community that has a long history of trying to, in some ways, uplift, if you will, folks. And I think that this work is really critical. I'm wondering, how do you scale up? because Warnersville is one of many communities. Unfortunately, we can't like replicate Marianne LaGreco. (laughs) (laughs) That is unfortunate. Maybe I can work on that. I'm wondering, it's like you've created in some ways some systems, a culture, brought the community in as co-producers, which is really important. And how do we scale up? Or maybe that's not the way to think about it because we don't want to have a society that requires these kinds of interventions if we have a society that has, you know, I mean, this is a larger political question. I like to think of it sometimes as how do we transfer across instead of scale up? Mm. Because it's, it's not a matter of creating one gigantic urban farm and farmer's market central hub that's going to take care of everyone. It's a matter of going into each and every neighborhood and figuring out, well, who's the Marianne in your neighborhood? And who's the Naisha in your neighborhood? And how can you get the two of them working together to think about this? Because I think that's a big piece of it is the community buy-in portion of it. Like I was fairly fortunate in the sense that I really liked Greensboro and I liked living here. So I was happy to stay here and do this kind of work for 10 years. And I fell in love with people in the Warnersville neighborhood. Like I go to church in that neighborhood. I'm super connected to a lot of the folks who live there. And I think that's that's part of one of the things that I feel like as community engaged researchers, we have to be prepared to do. We have to be prepared as the research side of it to build the relationships with folks so that we're not the core of the community, but we are a part of the community. And it takes a while to build up that relationship. And so for me as a communication person, how we transfer this across is we look at it in terms of the communication networks and the relationship building. You need to have that kind of infrastructure there so that people in the neighborhood feel like they can do this work. 
One of the interesting things about the Warnersville neighborhood is that there are two predominant populations of folks who live in that neighborhood. It's They've got a fascinating history and the Greensboro Historical Museum has an amazing account of it that I would encourage folks to take a look at. But it was a neighborhood that was really a model of the Black middle class up until the 1960s. And then in urban renewal, it really changed things. And there were largely people who are older in that neighborhood now. And now there's a lot of public housing in the neighborhood where the average turnaround times, folks usually live um, in some of the public housing for about 18 months, and then they'll move somewhere else. And so in terms of building community around doing food work, It's been kind of a challenge because we've got folks who are older in their 70s and 80s who are advocates for this, but they also recognize that they couldn't necessarily do the work themselves. And then we've also got folks who are in the public housing who were very interested and committed, but they might be there for a very short amount of time. And so you need to find the folks in the neighborhood who can provide some of that like long-term support and trust and structure so that whoever the population of that neighborhood is, whoever the folks are who live there can feel more secure in terms of contributing. But Naisha and I have this really interesting article that we have in a, in a journal called Management Communication Quarterly, where we talk about narratives and stories and how you need both the people who are there to carry the narratives. So the people who are there in terms of the long term, you know, to chronicle like this is the history of the urban farm. This is the history of the farmer's market. But you also need the people who are there to kind of disrupt the narrative and to say, hey, this is how we can make things different and creative and do things in an innovative way. And so when it comes to transferring this sort of thing across to other areas or scaling it up, I think starting with that base of what's your narrative and who's going to carry your story and who are going to be the creative innovators that provide that foundation so that the community members, the people who live in that neighborhood feel more secure about being a part of the organizing. Like they know that you're going to be there and you're going to hang in there and that, you know, your urban farm might've been struggling for the first few years but just hang in there for a while and we're going to build something great together. You need to have that trust. And I think that's, for me, step one of doing this kind of work is building that trust at a community level. Man, I'm just loving everything you're saying. And I particularly am impressed by this concept of expanding out a network as opposed to building up in a linear fashion, because it really speaks to the idea of transfer, the idea of having a test case somewhere and then being able to see how it works and learn from that and then create partners in a new space and come up with a model. But recognizing, of course, I think part of what you're saying is that it's going to look different in different places, right? So it's about finding the partners that can help you build what works in that particular context, as opposed to assuming that there's a sort of a one size fits all solution. Can you say a little bit? So you you mentioned Naisha, who's your partner in this. I just wondered if you could tell us a little about her and what her role is and how the two of you connected. So Naisha and I have a book project that is about to come out uh, with the University of California Press called Everybody Eats. Congratulations. Thank you. And it is a series of case studies that chronicles a lot of the work that we've done over the last 10 years. And so we feature things like the Warnersville Urban Farm, the Mobile Oasis Farmers Market, uh, Kitchen Connects GSO. All of these are various different food projects that we've worked on over the past several years. And Naisha and I met while we were doing pop-up markets to create the foundation for the Mobile Oasis Farmers Market. I was working with several folks with the Warnersville Community Coalition because we wanted to start a mobile farmers market in the neighborhood. And so think of it just like an ice cream truck that delivers fruits and vegetables instead of ice cream. So awesome. Yes. And we did successfully launch that, but we had to start 
start off and build up a track record before we could get some funding. And so we did some really, really, really low cost pop-up markets. And one of the ways to build some relationships with the community was to have several special event markets. And so one of the ones that we had during peach season over the summer was a peach treats contest. And Otis Hairston, who uh, passed away in 2013, but was a really, really, really strong advocate for some of this work in the very early stages, invited Naisha to contribute her peach ice cream to the uh, peach treats contest. And she came in second. And this has become like a banner story of the Warnersville Farmers Markets was when Naisha got second, because there are a lot of people who thought, no, Naisha should have won. Because <laughs> she makes the best peach ice cream. <laughs> yes, she makes, she does. She makes really awesome peach ice cream. <laughs> and so that's how Naisha and I met. She lived in the Warnersville neighborhood and she was commuting from Greensboro to Charlotte three times a week to complete her doctoral work. I wasn't her advisor by any stretch of the imagination, but I was someone she sought advice from because I was here and we'd be hanging out at the markets. And we started to realize that several of our research interests started to overlap a little bit. Her primary area is in adult education and she's really interested on figuring out ways to empower older adults to either go back in and expand their education, to apply what they know in everyday settings. And so there were a lot of great opportunities for us to work together because we shared an interest about building community and we shared an interest about increasing food access. And so we've done so much together in terms of helping to launch the Mobile Oasis Farmers Market with multiple other partners uh, like the Guilford County Department of Health and Human Services and their Public Health Division, the Warnersville Community Coalition. She and I, I guess, I guess have been kind of constants for each other because I think we help balance it out each other in certain ways because I tend to see things from a networking position and how do we network people together in order to solve problems. And then she sees things from a very cultural and grounded perspective in terms of, well, how does this work for this particular neighborhood? And so I think we've been a good influence on each other in terms of, of helping to ask some hard questions around food, but then coming up with some creative solutions on how to address that. It sounds like a great collaboration. Yes, she's been a wonderful, wonderful person to, to have met. We want to bring in um, uh, somebody else who's actually been working on issues of food insecurity, Nadja mentioned at the outset of the show. Um, like to bring in Derek Jones, uh, who has a MS degree in analytical chemistry from North Carolina A&T State University and is a PhD candidate at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. He does medicinal chemistry research in our co-host, Nadja Cech's uh, laboratory, and just submitted his first paper on this work for a review last week. Congratulations, Derek, on that. Um, Derek is just finishing his term as Graduate Student Association President for our university. Uh, in this position, and as a member of the Czech Research Group, he's uh, worked passionately and effectively uh, to support the development of his fellow students. Uh, one of uh, his legacies as GSA president is to have raised actually more than $5,000 to help address food insecurity for UNCG students. So uh, welcome to the show, Derek, uh, who's been listening in on the conversation so far. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. And I'm so honored to be here. First of all, I just love everything that you're doing. It sounds like you're building community. One of my questions is, in building community, 
you also serve community, but is there a way that you serve yourself? Like, how do you balance serving yourself and serving the community as a whole? This is a really good question because I think that a lot of it goes back to what I learned from our Office of Leadership and Civic Engagement, which used to be called our Office of Leadership and Service Learning. One of the first conversations that I had at a meeting with the faculty and staff who were involved in that office was about the idea of reciprocity and about how community engagement and this type of work doesn't succeed unless there is some sort of reciprocity and that you are offering and you are serving your research partners and you are, are working with them and you are serving the community. But at the same time, you also have to make sure that you are getting something out of it too in that sort of altruistic sort of way, not in a selfish sort of way. I've had some professional benefits by being able to take a stage and talk about these kinds of topics. And so I definitely recognize those sort of benefits that I've received in this conversation. So thank you. I think that's it's an insightful question to ask because it's, again, that idea of reciprocity, that it is a give and take relationship. It is we give something, but we also need to make sure that as researchers, we're taking care of ourselves and that we're able to make sure that we've got something out of the relationship as well. It seems to me, just to kind of build on what you're asking, Derek, and how you're responding, Marianne, is that part of it is also just, I think people want to give to their fellow human beings. And you've figured out a way to actually do that in a way that also benefits you professionally. I mean, I think that many of us feel that way. I mean, I am a beneficiary of the struggles of Black people that made it possible for Black studies programs in African American history, for instance, to be created as a discipline at universities. And that's who basically pays my bills is that struggle and that activity of human labor over years. But it's also the case that you've been able to carve out a, a career that is, it sounds like it's also probably just fulfilling as a human being. Being who wants to give to other people. And so I think the issue of reciprocity is a human issue that you've successfully been able to figure out a way to fulfill your human needs, but also your professional needs. And I was thinking about how Derek is one of the most service-oriented people I know, if not the most service-oriented. If anybody ever needs help, he's the first person to see if he can help. And I was thinking that how we are able to or not carve out careers that can fulfill that human need, not just go to a job to pay a bill. So, you know, one of the things I know, and I was curious, Derek, maybe you could talk about this, is about your aspirations to become sort of a mentor and science educator to support others develop in their professions, uh, with particular attention to young people of color, but all people, because I know you, you help out everybody. One of my biggest goals is to serve people. Um, like you said, Dr. Ali, I love serving people. And I'm learning not to feel guilty when I need to take time and serve myself because that's a part of community building. It's serving yourself, making sure that you are good. But one of my long-term goals is to go back into the communities that I was raised up in as a Black African-American male that didn't have access to all of the food resources, all of the educational tools. And when I say food resources, I mean 
my dad's paycheck would be so small that he could only buy oodles and noodles for a week for me. Or we go to McDonald's and he only had $3.21 and he used that money to feed me to make sure that I'm nourished and ready for the school week. And so building off of that disadvantages, just now that I'm in a privileged point of getting ready to get my PhD, I feel like I have a voice to kind of draw other people in of color, people who isn't necessarily dominated in the STEM field. And that's something that I'm very, very passionate about. And I know you've done that a lot with Nanja. I mean, you've been working together for now, how many years, Nanja? It's probably like four years? I think so. Three or four years. Mm -hmm. So how do you both work? Because I I always hear stories from Nadja's side about, you know, your collaboration in the lab and your, your support of other students. But what is your sort of approach, Derek, if you could explain a little bit about how it is that you build stuff with people? One thing I do is I try to find a place of intersectionality. And what I mean by intersectionality, a place where paths kind of cross. So in marginalization. And I just talk about that. And I also try to figure out ways people are affected in a bad way and try to help in that way. Absolutely, Derek. Can I also add to that? Because obviously I see you in action every day working in my research group, at least back when we used to go to the building together. But I was going to draw on a conversation that you and I were having actually recently about this idea of Yes And. This is the, the Yes And Cafe podcast, right? And you were talking about how you find Yes And to be really helpful in your community organizing. So if I can ask a leading question, uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about what that looks like for you? As GSA president, as working with administrators, a lot of people have a lot of ideas that they're passionate about. And I have ideas that I'm passionate about. And I find the yes and principle so very helpful because while I might not agree in full with the idea a person might have, I always make sure I am listening to key words that they are saying that I like and we can do this as well. And that's really been very helpful for me for the graduate food insecurity and just saying, yeah, that is a great idea. And we can also maybe reach out to these people to do this as well. So that's been very, very helpful. I was thinking that Marianne does a lot of yes anding, if you will. In some ways, we don't also necessarily use that same language, even if we're doing that activity, which it seems like you and Naisha have been doing together for some time. I oftentimes think about the yes and because I have a tendency to be the person who says yes, but frequently. And I'm trying to say yes and a little bit more because I have sometimes felt like I am a really good person who helps connect ideas to details. So I'm not the idea generator and I'm not the person who is going to carry out the work in perpetuity, but I'm the person who is going to help you connect your ideas to the details so that they don't die on the way they 
there. But sometimes that means that I have to tell folks, you're not ready to do this. And so trying to figure out how to do that in a productive way when it comes to food, because you don't want to squash someone's idea who wants to start a new mobile farmer's market or food bank or urban farm. At the same time, you also want to help folks realize that this organizing can be very difficult and demanding work. Growing food is a challenge. Like farmers do a lot of really hard work and we need to recognize that. So sometimes folks aren't ready yet. And so trying to figure out how to say that from a yes and perspective can be a real challenge, especially when you have to be the bearer of news who says, you're not quite ready for this. Let's figure out how to retool it so you can get there. I have a quick question I would like to ask Derek if that's okay. So Derek, um, I'm always very grateful that my PhD is in communication studies. At the same time, I have often also wished that if I was a magical superwoman, that I would also have PhDs in nutrition and chemistry, because I think that you are in an area that can be incredibly innovative when it comes to food. And I'm curious to know, in the next steps of your life, have you thought about how you might bring together your community engagement? around food, your degrees in chemistry, uh, your work with administrators? Are there ways that you've thought about how you might leverage this into your own work moving forward around food? Yes, that's been a conversation that I've been having with myself a lot here lately Because as I'm ending up my PhD. One of the things that I always come back to with my PhD is like, yes, the PhD is the title, but I want to also bring in more people of color. So one way of doing that is going back out to those neighborhoods, those disadvantaged neighborhoods, and letting them know like, hey, there's a black scientists here and there's a way to get food or providing some type of website for people to have access to food. I know Dr. Akins do Spartan Open Pantry and I and just collaborating with what's already going on is very beneficial for me. Um, so that's one of the ways that I want to do it while educating people in science as well um, and mentoring people in science is just making sure that I always go back to the community that I came from and provide that communication. So Derek and Marianne, this question goes to both of you, but I know all uh, we have a lot of listeners that are thinking about what they could be doing to help out. And obviously you're both on the front lines of trying to address food insecurity issues in this current crisis. What kinds of things can we be doing to help you? I just wanted to throw out that we are doing the food insecurity initiative is really near and dear to my heart just because growing up and not having a lot of food and that people could still get involved through Cash App by um, dollar sign UNCGGSA or Venmo at UNCG. GSA if they would like to donate to help graduate students during this unprecedented time because a lot of our graduate students are um, not having enough money or their spouse was laid off or now they have to provide extra meals for kids. So we're trying to alleviate that the best way that we can. Thank you. And thank you, Derek. I think the only thing I would add to piggyback off of that is to, uh, we were encouraging folks on our most uh, recent episode of Liquid Philosophy to pledge part of their stimulus check that they are receiving from the federal government toward food-related sorts of assistance. So 
donating a portion of it to Graduate Student Association. Uh, I know the Corners Farmers Market and the People's Farmers Market in Glenwood are currently working on a Green for Greens project where they are raising money to double snappy BT dollars at their farmers markets. So um, if you need all of that $1,200, keep it and use it. But if you can spare a portion of it, think about uh, contributing to some of our local food efforts in Greensboro. Marianne, this has been such a wonderful and inspiring conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you, Derek, for both of you for being here today. Thank you both so very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Oh, and thanks for everything that you're doing to support our community through this difficult time. And have a good one. Have a great day, everyone. Take care. Many thanks to the University Teaching and Learning Center that provided the recording studio, to Ashley Scott, who did our logo, to Lloyd International Honors College, to University Communications, including our production team, Matt Bryant and Ben Peterson. 